Father, as we open your word together this morning, we pray for your blessing to be upon us. We pray for the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us as we sang in the prelude, Lord. Um, our hearts are an open place for you to come and have your way. We belong to you. Please make yourself known to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so uh, some of us on the leadership team here have been reading this bright orange book, <clears throat> which is called uh, Made for People by uh, Justin Whitmore Early, published last year. Uh, the subtitle here is Why We Drift Into Loneliness and How to Fight for a Life of Friendship. Uh, it's a really good book, and if loneliness is a problem for you, then I do recommend it to you. And it seems that today, loneliness is a problem for just about everybody. Uh, Justin Whitmore Early reports in this book that beginning in 2016, uh, researchers started to notice that the life expectancy in America was falling. And it was falling more dramatically than it had since the flu epidemic of the 1960s. Uh, since they first noticed this eight years ago, the pattern has only gotten worse and worse year by year. And uh, people have been investigating this alarming trend. And uh, Whitmore Early reports, the researchers have discovered that our life expectancy was falling not because of a pandemic or cancer or anything else you might expect, the real reasons, he says, were grim and much more preventable stuff. Young suicides, drug overdoses, alcoholism, and other preventable diseases of self-inflicted unhealth. In other words, deaths of despair, a phrase that has now entered the American vocabulary. And Whitman Early pins the blame for these deaths of despair on our growing loneliness. Recent studies have shown that chronic loneliness is more dangerous to your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Health organizations around the Western world have pronounced us in the middle of an epidemic of loneliness because it's not the body that's killing us, it's the lonely soul that's killing the body. And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic only made this problem much, much worse. I'm sure this is not a surprise to any of you, You've all heard this, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so we're going to open John 17, and we need what Jesus has to say to us this morning. Uh, his words in this passage are not just eternal life for us, they're also going to be present day life too. What Jesus has to say in John 17 is going to help us in this present moment to literally live longer. Um, because what he has to say in John 17 is the answer to this present crisis. In my view, it's the only answer, the one that all the doctors should be prescribing right now. You need to be reunified with the Holy Trinity. Just that, that's all. Um, so uh, let's look at what Jesus means. Uh, John 17 is page 902. Some of you have been looking for it already. Please, please grab a pew Bible, 902, John chapter 17. First, we're going to examine the solution to loneliness, according to Jesus. Second, examine why it solves the core problem of loneliness. And third, ask how we should apply Jesus' solution in practice. So first then, what is the solution Jesus offers? We're going to start with John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays to his heavenly Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, 
and I in you, that they also may be in us. So here we find Jesus praying, and not just for his 12 apostles around the dinner table with him, but now for everyone who is later going to believe in Jesus through their word. And their word means their testimony about Jesus, their teaching about him. Their word then includes this very gospel of John that we have open in front of us, along with the rest of the New Testament. And so the people that Jesus is praying for here includes you and me, right? Have you come to believe in Jesus through the witness of John's gospel or other parts of the New Testament? If so, then you are included in this prayer of Jesus. And it's as if Jesus sits in the upper room on the last night of his life, and he looks forward in time down the tunnel of unfolding history, and he sees how the word about him is going to spread and be shared from person to person, believer to believer, down 2,000 years, all the way down to you, sitting here right now in your pew. You, sitting here in your pew with your Bible open in front of you, are looking back in time to Jesus, eating dinner with his disciples. And as you look back, you see him there looking straight at you, twinkle in his eye, looking at you, praying for you. This passage is a kind of living, two-way time machine. Do you believe that Jesus, sitting there at dinner, could personally see you yourself? in his mind's eye as he prayed this prayer, along with everything you've got going on, all your personal cares and struggles. I believe that. I believe he could see you and me. So, that what Jesus prays here, then, is what we most need today for the challenges we are facing, especially, then, this pervasive struggle against loneliness that we have. So, what does Jesus pr prescribe? What does he ask the Father on our behalf? Verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one. Let's pause on this verse and wrestle with it before we uh, go on to how it helps us. So first, um, Jesus prays here in verse 22 for unity, unity among believers. The banner word here is unity, that all of us may be one just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. And I say that casually because I'm familiar with this idea. I've said it a dozen times before. But it doesn't stop that idea being one of the most outlandish and mind-blowing things ever spoken, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus' goal and prayer for his church is nothing short of the unity of the Trinity itself. Wow, if we hear him properly, we jump up and shout, No, surely that's completely unthinkable. And surely even to ask for that is town to man. To blasphemy. None of us would ever dare to ask God for such a thing, except that Jesus does. Jesus then quickly explains that the only grounds for that hope is the church's unity with God the Father through the Son. He prays, I in them and you in me. In other words, we cannot hope to be united with one another unless we are first each united with God. And one more step Jesus makes in verse 23 is to sow this idea that the unity he has in mind involves indwelling. In his words, I in them and you in me, that, that they may be perfectly one. And the word perfectly here is a form of the Greek telos. We know this word. It means uh, complete, finished, according to its fullest design and purpose. Jesus prays his church would be perfectly one. 
So um, this prayer here of Jesus is it's one of those mysterious ideas in Scripture that sounds simple and intuitive. But then the more you press into it, the more you pick it apart, the more you try to explain it in other words, the more it eludes you. And you realize how little you actually understand it. The theological term for what Jesus is talking about is mutual indwelling. Mutual indwelling. So verse 21, Jesus says, you, Father, are in me, and I in you. They dwell within each other. That's mutual indwelling. And I really can't think of any example of this in the material world. Uh, it's, hard, it's a hard concept to grasp, because if, if I eat a burger, the burger is in me, but I am not in the burger. <coughs> uh, I did think of maybe a soccer ball. The air is in the ball, and the ball is in the air. But that's not very satisfying, because uh, those are just different parts of the air, and none of those parts of the air have any personhood. Uh, mutual indwelling means more than that. It's materially paradoxical. And then it gets even more paradoxical in verse 26, because Jesus says, the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So layer that on top of what he's already said, and we start to get a picture that looks like a set of Russian dolls. You open up the church, and you find Jesus inside. And then you open up Jesus, and you find the Father inside. But the Russian dolls also work in reverse. It works the same the other way around, because back in John 14, verse 20, Jesus said, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So here the Russian dolls go in reverse, open up the Father, and you find the Son inside. Open up the Son, and you find the church inside. It's either church, son, father, or father, son, church. Both are true, and both true at the same time. And either way around, the connection between the Father and the church is mediated through the Son. The Son is always in between. The Father is in us because the Son is in us, and we are in the Father because we are in the Son. Whew. Okay, so we got very theological. Um, I want to try and bring this down to earth a little bit. Um, so we need material images, and I want us to imagine a pregnant woman. That's pretty easy. We've had plenty of those around recently. Um, and I want to think, what if God made pregnancy as a model of indwelling? The baby is in the mother. And of course, this is only a one-way indwelling, but it's maybe still a good model. The baby is in the mother, and because of it, mother and baby share one blood, one breath, one nutrient stream. She feels him all the time as weight and warmth and presence and morning sickness. She feels him move and kick. There's a oneness to them, but there's also a distinctiveness. They are two people, not one person. And the unity we're talking about here does not erase distinctiveness. Um, so we are not lost in the Father. The Father is not lost in us. Persons mutually indwell without losing distinctive personhood. But like mother and baby, much is shared, much is intuitively known. <laughs> well, guys, you can tell I'm really struggling to talk about this <laughs> This is deep waters. Um, I, d I do get this intuitively, and I hope that I've said enough that you might get it too. Uh, and if this is what we were made for, this mutual indwelling, it sure goes a long way to explain why we're all so gosh darn lonely. Um, 
In the words of one theologian, what we were made for was abiding, restful union with God. And that theologian argued this is the whole theme, the central theme of John's gospel, the goal of abiding, restful union, a settled intimacy with God through Jesus. And if that's what we've lost, of course we're all lonely. So now, second, why does Jesus' solution here solve the real problem of loneliness? And uh, we've started the answer. Maybe the first part of the answer is obvious on one level. Because if we're reunified with God on such an intimate level of mutual indwelling, then we will be less lonely. We'll be, in a way, returned to the womb of God, hearing his heart beat at all times. And we'll be, in another sense, pregnant with God. The Virgin Mary was literally pregnant with God for nine months, God inside her body. But all believers are promised God inside our bodies too, in a way that is spiritual, but no less real. Our bodies are called temples of the Holy Spirit. So we might say that in a spiritual sense, we are pregnant with God. The metaphor isn't perfect, but maybe it helps us understand a bit better what Jesus is talking about. During pregnancy, some women find real comfort against loneliness by having another person there all the time, even a silent one. And so might we be comforted by God dwelling within us. But wonderful as this is, it isn't the whole story. Justin Whitmore early in his book argues that we are made for people. Relationally then, God alone is not enough for us. And he fully realizes how alarming that sounds, even blasphemous. But he makes a strong case that Adam, who had God, still needed Eve. And in the perfection of the garden, God himself said of Adam, it is not good that man should be alone. So we are designed to need our God, yes, but also made for people. The commands of Jesus to love go in two directions and not just one. So I want to think about the heart of our loneliness problem and where it came from. In the garden, when we first sinned and rebelled against God, we lost our good relationship with God, naturally. But didn't we also lose our good relationships with other people? We see in those stories that Adam immediately threw Eve under the bus when God challenged him. Cain immediately murdered Abel. Human relationships broke in the fall, and they continue to break whenever we choose the path of sin. So in the things that we choose, there's often something we lose. If I choose to binge a series of Netflix, I lose a night of sleep. If I choose to snooze through my alarm clock, I lose breakfast. If I choose to live without good manners or personal hygiene, I lose friends. If I choose a big house with a motorized garage door, I lose neighborhood community. If I choose to binge on alcohol every day, I lose the respect of my loved ones. And if I choose never to exercise my muscles, I lose the ability to walk. We choose and we lose. And I'm not pointing fingers. None of this is punitive. These are natural consequences with which we are all familiar. I'm just noticing that every single one of us makes decisions every day that cost us big time. And uh, sometimes we just ignore the price tag, and sometimes we recognize it and plow ahead regardless. 
We tell ourselves at the time that the freedom is worth it. So we put it on the credit card. Bloop. Swipe now, pay later. What about sin? What do I lose when I choose sin? Our minds may rush to all kinds of answers. We might lose God or truth or peace or a clean conscience. Yes to all of those things. But here's the answer that I think is really going to bite us. We lose everybody. I choose sin. I lose everyone. Why is this? Well, because of two factors. First, because so many actions that we call sins are themselves anti-community acts, anti-social acts. Murder is naturally antisocial. <laughs> it removes a person from the human family, and then the rest of the human family doesn't want a murderer around. Neither does it want a thief around, or an adulterer, or a coveter. Liars and false witnesses create strife within a community. They sow confusion and division and undermine the foundation of truth on which community is built. So we see that sin, in all of its acts, naturally acts in an antisocial way and therefore trends naturally toward isolation and loneliness. Even a gang of sinners, united in their sin, like a gang of thieves, will usually turn against each other in the end. But there's also another factor working alongside this, the factor that sin of itself blocks love. Maybe we could say that sin unplugs us from love. So here in Tallahassee, we have a city that's wired together with electricity. It all comes from the Hopkins power plant out on Getty Road, also now from our brand new solar farms. The power comes into the city and is distributed around the city through a series of transformers. And we all know well that when the storm comes through and the transformer blows, we lose our power, and so do all our neighbors. Our houses, then, are chained together. And God's love works a bit like that, too. God is like the power plant, the massive generator of all love, which gets fed out into the world. My house receives it, passes it along to my neighbor's house. If I lose connection from the power plant, I also have nothing to give my neighbor. Sin separates me from God, and an instantaneous side effect is that it blocks love. So then here in this passage, Jesus is like the electrical technician, the hurricane hero, riding in on a bright yellow cherry picker to reset the transformer, to reconnect me to the power source of God's love, which simultaneously reconnects me to my neighbor. So do we see then that John 17 solves a real problem of loneliness? Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter here. Loneliness was actually no kind of small deal in any generation. It's always been a big deal, a major side effect of sin, a major reason that Jesus came. His life's work answers the deepest problem of mankind, which is alienation with the answer of forgiveness and reconciliation. And if we reject his mission and his solutions, we should expect the natural consequence to be loneliness. America has swiped the credit card. Bleep. And in our days, the bill is coming due. In verse 25, Jesus says, O righteous Father, the world does not know you. The world does not know you. The world has chosen not to know you. It has cut the power, lights out plunged itself into loneliness and disconnection. So America is lonely for the reason that it is no longer interested in knowing God. And it will continue to get more and more lonely 
until it revives its interest in the God of love. So then finally, those of us who know him and who long to know him more, and thankfully we are many. What do we do about this? What does all this mean for us today? How can we help? How can it help us and how can we help the world? We know that the present epidemic of loneliness is a tragedy. We don't come here to laugh at it or condemn it, but to help if we can. First of all, our own loneliness, because we know we have it too. And um, I, I do again recommend to you this book. Early's book is uh, full of really good and practical ideas about it. He's um, got whole chapters on the practical ideas for building friendship in this day. So I direct you here for those uh, that advice. Um, but here in the pulpit as your pastor, um, I want to talk about our inclusive attitude toward the church of Jesus. As Jeremiah prayed in the beginning, thanks to the work of Jesus on our behalf, we are made one family. We are unified. Jesus, in breaking his body of flesh on the cross, has reunited his body, the church. He has solved the problem of alienation. In Paul's words, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And so today, I call all of us now to keep that wall of hostility in ruins, not to rebuild it ourselves, nor to stand by and watch others rebuild it. So don't put back the hostilities and suspicions that Jesus came to tear down. We know that around this world, there is one church of Jesus, one bride. Jesus is monogam monogamous. He only has one bride, uh, and members of that bride are to be found scattered throughout every Christian denomination on the earth. It's not every member of every denomination. In fact, it's probably not every member of any denomination. But some, wherever Christ is preached and worshipped, however faintly, they are our brothers and sisters, our own flesh and blood. And that family allegiance that we have with Christians all over the world, that identity supersedes any other allegiance to anything else. It supersedes our family of origin, our national citizenship, our ethnic identity, our identity as male or female, our profession or possessions, or the clubs we belong to. Christ is first. We are Christians first. So then, let us not speak ill of our Christian brothers or sisters or any other parts of the church for whom Christ died. Let's be gracious and charitable in our words, in person and online, quick to think the best, slow to imagine the worst. And here in Tallahassee, let's treat the Christians we meet as the family they are. If they are from another country or another ethnic background or speak a different language or earn a radically different wage or were born half a century earlier or later than us, so much the better. So much more marvelous the work of God in making us one family. And if you, in your personal relationships, tend to gravitate toward the people most like yourself, try harder. <laughs> the United Church of Jesus is much bigger and much broader than that. There's so much exciting territory to explore. Look further afield. Meet someone outside of your well-trodden categories. It really won't take you long to discover that you have been made family by Jesus with this other person. And you might simultaneously ease your loneliness and theirs. 
In the meantime, I call us all to really pay attention to our own personal holiness. And I think you know what I mean by that. It's the way of life that Jesus is forming in us through his Holy Spirit. It's a way of life that nudges us away from sin and self-indulgence and toward love and kindness and patience and self-control. And I call us to listen to the Lord on that, to work with him on it, um, and to follow this way of holiness. And if you need fresh motivation, then how about the high price tag of loneliness? We all hate being lonely, maybe more than anything. And there is not just a theoretical, but a demonstrable connection between loneliness and personal sin. Sin has a tendency to isolate us. It makes us ashamed. It makes us hide. It leaves us alone in the end. And I must testify to you guys that the loneliest people that I have ever encountered on this earth were also the people who had made least progress against their own personal sin. Now, none of the people I would put in that category would call themselves followers of Jesus. And so their progress against sin was essentially zero, not even making much effort at the social level of good manners and common decency. And I have watched them ending their lives thoroughly destitute in loving relationships, apart from the few Christians who were trying to draw near to them and being constantly rebuffed. On the other hand, when I think of the group of people in my own experience who have made the most progress down the path of personal holiness, those tend to be the least lonely people I know. I watch them ending their lives surrounded by children and grandchildren who love them, hosting friends and colleagues at their dinner tables, receiving words of blessing and thanks from the many lives their lives have blessed. Not every time. Time and chance happen to us all. I can think of exceptions. It's not an ironclad rule, but it is statistically significant. There are people in this world who are genuinely not lonely. The only ones I know are saints. You want to stop being lonely? Get serious in your fight against personal sin. Jesus prays to his Father in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Finally, how can we serve this world? Jesus says it doesn't know God. It lives in the darkness with no electricity. You who sit here might think you are lonely, but I suspect that we who have this and who by and large grew up in and go home to stable families have no idea just how far the ladder of human loneliness yawns beneath us. Let's have some compassion. We have power. Let's bring them in where the lights are on. In all likelihood, the person who lives next door to you is intensely lonely. Will you consider having him or her over to your house for coffee or dinner? Will you bring him or her here on a Sunday morning or to your mission or community? The good work Jesus has done in and for this church community is done, in one sense, for the sake of the world. Not to spite the world, not to mock its failure, but to invite the world to stop swiping its bankrupt credit cards and come into the treasure store. In verse 21, Jesus asks that they may also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. 
And he repeats his request in verse 23. So Jesus imagines a kind of unity for his church that's visible in the world. It is an internal and a spiritual reality. But it must not only be that. It must also be externally manifested. It has to be obvious enough for the world to see it. And I do think there's a unity in this room that's obvious enough for the world to see. And I praise God for that. And I call us to bring our friends here to see it. We might still feel that we have a personal loneliness problem. And I don't expect to fix that in a single sermon. I do once again recommend this very good book, Made for People, Justin Whitmore Early. I do think that Jesus has made the path ahead clear. Jesus has prayed for us, and he is praying still this very day. He's praying, interceding before the throne of the Father, that we would be unified with him and with each other. And his prayer is going to be answered as we continue to follow him in his way, to be sanctified in his truth. I know of no other solution. I have seen this one work, and I call you all to follow Jesus. Amen.